Hello and welcome to Governance Uncovered, a podcast brought to you by the Program on Governance and Local Development at the University of Gothenburg, supported by the Swedish Research Council. I'm your host, Ellen Lust, and I'm happy to have two guests with me this month, Liana Vangderud and Valeria Mechkova, both from the Department of Political Science at the University of Gothenburg. Liana is a full professor of political science and deputy head of the department. Her main research interests are representative democracy, focusing on women's political influence and gender equality issues, gender and corruption, and gender gaps in levels of anxiety. Valeria has recently defended her dissertation and will be starting a postdoctoral research fellowship in the department. Her research focuses on how government accountability and political representation affect human development outcomes, such as economic growth and infant and maternal mortality. She has a particular interest in the political representation of minority groups and women. In this episode, we talk about women's political representation, both descriptively, in terms of the numbers of female members in political parties, parliaments, and councils, and substantively, in terms of the priority of political issues that are put forth. We address questions such as, can women's representation be effective in autocracies? Is female inclusion in parliaments just a political strategy to appear modern? And what does it mean for the everyday life of citizens when their ruling parties are gender equal? We hope that you enjoyed this episode and invite you to like, share, and subscribe to Governance Uncovered wherever you get your podcasts. So, Liana and Vale, thank you very much for joining us here today. I'm really, really glad to have you both here. And Vale, I also want to congratulate you. You just finished your PhD, so it's an excellent achievement. And and thank you very much for, for taking time to join. Well, thank you for having us, Alan. It's really great to be here, part of this podcast, which I've enjoyed very much so far. Yeah, thank you. No, it would be interesting to have a conversation with the two of you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Thanks. I want to start just by giving the listeners an understanding of how the representation of women in elected bodies has changed over time. So maybe if you can start by just describing a little bit about political representation of women and, and how that has changed, we can set the stage for everybody listening. Right. Yeah, I can I can start uh, perhaps. And uh, first, uh, maybe one thing to uh, underline from uh, the get-go is that men's overrepresentation in politics is uh, still very much alive and well. So although change has happened and uh, women's representation has increased substantively and over the globe uh, in the latest years, like still this is uh, something that is uh, an issue for most countries uh, in the world. But yeah, as I said, things have improved. Uh, so we can uh, we can see when, when looking at the average uh, number of uh, women in uh, parliaments and cabinets and also in the highest level, the head of state, head of government, uh, the numbers of women have increased uh, dramatically. So uh, if we look just 50, 60 years ago in the 1970s, 1980s, the share of women in parliaments and in cabinets was only around 5%. And then we started to see the, these numbers uh, increasing dramatically in the 90s. There was one milestone event, uh, the Beijing conference, which uh, focused a lot on uh, trying to increase the representation of women. And then uh, now, in recent years, we see that the number of women in parliaments and in cabinets is more than 20%. And important to say that in the executive, so presidents and prime ministers, change has been much slower. So right now we see less than 10% of women are taking this highest office. And I don't know that much about the local politics, so I'll just hand over to Lena. 
I just want to add that, uh, of course, we can focus on the stability of made power. But uh, I mean, I started this to do research in this area in the 1990s. And then Sweden was the only country in the world with more than 40% women in the national parliament. And today it's more than 30 countries around the world that has more than 40% women in the parliament. So it's a major change. And if you look at Sweden, but also some other countries, we can see that the local level on average follows the percentages for the national level. But at the same time, behind such average, there can be great variation. Mm -hmm. If you look at the local level in Sweden, for example, there are some municipalities with less than 30% women in the local councils and some municipalities with 60% of women. So when you look at the local level or the regional level, you have to be aware that the national average does not say that much because it can vary dramatically between different parts of a country or between different regions of a country. And uh, today I think that you can see that in many countries that uh, the increase is actually steeper at the national level because there is so much pressure on the national level. And some countries that gender quotas, for example, on the national level, do not have it on, on the municipal level, or they only have it for local councils of a certain, um, I have to say, how, how big they are. So if they are really small municipalities, then they tend not to have quotas, and then the number of women decreases. So if you look at the big picture, yes, the local level tend to go together with the national level, but behind the averages, there are great variation. Do we know anything about that variation? Is it in the places that are bigger and maybe people are more educated or they're more wealthier that we have more women? Or is it in the places where they're smaller that we have more women because maybe it's not as important to be in local council? I mean, do we have any, yeah, any or, sense or about urban what... Urban areas tend to have a higher number of women than more rural areas. And that's even in a place like Sweden where there's no difference in terms of quotas and that's yeah. not what drives it. But it also depends on, on which party in power or the largest party. Because still uh, we can see in many counties that parties more to the left tend to promote women to a higher degree than more conservative parties or parties that are more to the right on the ideological spectrum. So it also depends on the kind of party that is in power and how much, they, how much effort they, they put into this. And just to the national level for a minute again, you'd mentioned that Sweden was the first country to be more than 40% women in, in parliament, right? But do we know anything about what types of countries are having greater representation? I mean, I think many of us think that, okay, the West has, has greater representation than maybe the global South, but I'm just curious as to know whether that's actually accurate or, or do we really see that kind of much more varied? I think that uh, this has changed uh, over time. So uh, what Elena said is like, okay, Sweden has uh, achieved great representation of women early on. But then also a lot of countries from the so-called Global South, as you said, have uh, tried to increase uh, the number of women, especially after conflicts. So we were seeing that uh, this effort has been prominent. And now uh, in, in more recent years, I think that we see that more the Western countries and richer countries do do see a higher number of women. 
No, it has been a dramatic change. In the 1980s, early 1990s, the Nordic countries were topping all rankings. Today, the five countries topping the list on the highest number of women in parliament are Rwanda, Cuba, Nicaragua, Mexico, and United Arab Emirates. And Sweden is number 12 on the ranking at the moment. So there's been a dramatic change. And as, as you could hear from my list, uh, Some of those countries are not even democratic countries, Mm. they're authoritarian states. And this is also a a big difference compared to how it was in the 1980s and Mm. 1990s. Do we see changes in terms of what the, or relationship between the latitude of what the parliament can do and say, for example, parliamentary representation? Do we know anything about that? Well, uh, I would like to put it this way, that... um, some countries, yes, the parliament means less if you're thinking about uh, changes in the everyday life of citizens. The more authoritarian states perhaps does not mean the same as a democratic state when it comes to being responsive and really put through changes in people's everyday life. But I think that for some states, uh, the number of women increases because there's a lot of international pressure. And uh, one of our colleagues, Aung Towns, she has shown that for some states, this is a way to, to appear modern and mm. uh, westernized, even though mm. if you are not really democratic beyond having a high number of uh, women in the parliament. So I think it's very important to take into account what type of state that you mm. have when you try to discuss why mm. is there a high number of women in the parliament and what is the effect of having a high, mm. high number but you have been looking more at authoritarian states, yeah. so you have a slightly different version. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I just was just thinking about that. That it's also uh, one one thing that we've we've seen from the literature is that uh, many authoritarian countries also try to co-opt women. So this is one strategy, not uh, as a way to empower women and to let them defend their interests in politics, but rather this has been a strategy to try to appeal to groups, new groups of uh, voters and co-opt uh, uh, in this way in, in authoritarian regimes. And you're sort of both hinting at the relationship between, we think of as descriptive rep- representation, are women sitting in the seats, right? And actually, what's the impact? And when you're saying about the impact on citizens' everyday lives. So just to give us a sense of what do we know about having more women in parliament? In a sense, what difference does that make? Yeah, so what we usually talk about this, what does difference does it make? And we term it substantive representation. So then we talk about what's the effect of descriptive representation on substantive representation. And here the literature is really rich. So there has been a, a lot uh, done on that issue. And we tend to say that you can look at first, okay, so do women have different preferences in general? Or do they have different behavior? Do they vote differently? Do they make a change when to the end of the policy process? So when we think about policy outcomes, do they actually change something? And then when we start answering those questions, we see then different results. So there's been a lot done on the first questions that I said. So in terms of do women have different preferences? And here Elena has done a lot of work, so I'll, I'll hand it to her in a, in a second. But there's been a lot of research also on the behavior to see that whether women vote differently, do they speak differently? and and here the overwhelming evidence is that, yes, they uh, indeed they do. They uh, tend to, for example, in my research, I showed that 
in political campaigns. I've, I've looked at the 2018 elections in the US. I showed that women tend to talk more about those issues that we think as female issues, so for example. Healthcare is one issue that women t- tend to cover more. Also, issues such as sexual assault, environmental issues. So there's really different types of questions that that women cover. And then we can get, uh, get into maybe a little bit later in the political outcomes, because this is a totally different conversation. It's like, can women actually make a difference when at the end of the policy implementation chain? A lot of my research is done on the Nordic countries and here we can see that the changes that women in politics make kind of take different stages or it's done in different steps. So like in Sweden, the first 50 years with uh, women's right to vote and stand for election, a lot of the changes was focusing on women's rights, like basic rights, right to, to have a job and uh, to inherit money, etc., etc. And also like abortion rights and etc. But when that period ended, I would say in Sweden, it was like in the early 1970s. Then actually parental leave in Sweden became parental leave. So also mm-hmm. fathers could take parental leave for small kids. Before that, it was only mother that could mm-hmm. do that. And also um, when it comes to taxation, then in the early 1970s, women were taxed as individual. Before that, they were taxed within the family. And this is still the case in, in many countries. And I would say in that period, up to the early 1970s, a lot of influence or impact was on just getting the same rights for women as for men. But then in the 1970s, female politicians started to focus what I would call care and career politics. This is the possibility to both have a family and a paid career. And in Sweden, we could see, and but this is also true for Norway, that female politicians, they tended to push for public daycare, uh, childcare, mm-hmm. in order to be able to have a paid job. And uh, there's been a very nice study done in, in Norway showing that uh, public childcare expanded faster in those municipalities that had a high number of women elected, but up to a certain point. So when this kind of policy was more or less fulfilled, then the number of women in the local council didn't have an impact on that specific issue. So a lot of policies that can also be budget issues has to do with uh, how to combine work and family life. And in Sweden, also a lot of female politicians have been pushing for daddy quotas, which is also a way of trying to get men involved in traditional female areas of responsibility. But we can also see, also on the local level, that how much money is spent on women's shelters, for example. Mm-hmm. That's one area that female politicians had an impact. But more generally, I would say that either it is about women's rights in the more basic sense, or what I would call care and career politics. So that's a slightly different sort of way of thinking about women's issues than what you were suggesting with regards mm-hmm. to healthcare, right? In terms of which is an issue area that you could arguably say, okay, that that's affecting men and women if we're talking about cancer mm. or, you know, other mm. sets of kind of care mm. um, relatively equally, right? Because the two sets you named first are ones either about women's bodies and mm. women's mm. rights specifically, or else they're about you know, these kinds of issues that are around affecting women more, right? Mm. The, the ability to work and have mm. children, which was never as much of a barrier for men mm. as it was for women. 
How do we understand that shift? And is it fully recognized globally? Or just help me think through the shift from saying that something is something that women care more about, but it's a general issue versus something that women care more about because it's arguably more of what we would think of as a woman's issue. I No, I don't see a really contradiction. For, for me, the way I think about it is that this is about self-determination for women. And also health issues can be about self-determination mm. since if mm. healthcare does not work, yeah. <laughs> then we know who has to take most of the res- responsibility in the family, in the private sphere. That's women. Mm. So in that sense, to me, this is a, a proxy for mm. how, how to measure what affects self-determination for women in everyday life. And uh, then healthcare is not the perfect proxy, but it's one that is easy to, to measure globally. And I, I don't know, I tend to think about it that way. Yeah, I do as well. Like that, that will be my answer too. I've mentioned first healthcare. You know that because I study healthcare. So I was like immediately thinking about it. Although I totally agree with, with Lena that researchers have also looked a lot at family issues, for example, and divorce rights or um, property rights and so on. And Healthcare is one of a host of issues that, that we can think about. And for me, it's, it is in a sense of women's issues exactly for the reason that you, that you said is that namely because women have been the caretakers, right? They've been the ones to get the larger share of the burden to take care of children or family of whoever needs uh, taking care of it has been women. And my argument is exactly that when healthcare fails, women take the burden. And that is precisely why when asked about what are your preferences, where would you like us to invest more? Women tend to say more often, I, I would like us to invest in healthcare and this should be a priority. I also think it's very important here to think about the context. And I mean, for some countries, especially developing countries, safe roads, toilets, uh, those kind of things can be the primary issues mm-hmm. talking about women's interests. So Therefore, I'm always very careful and try to use the concept of self-determination and try to think in different contexts what kind of issues can delimit self-determination for women more than men. And those are the kind of areas that we should try to look for when we try to measure this empirically. I'm tempted immediately to mention this very popular paper. It's views we should mention it at a point that this study on India and Duflo, who had looked at exactly that, they've, they've tried to, in a very smart way, distinguish like what are the priorities of the community. And they managed to link that to the projects that local councillors have started. And they show very, very convincingly that when you increase the women's representation, the policy priority that is specific for women in that community mm-hmm. gets more attention. And it was, it was the same also for men, actually. So for whatever men prioritize more citizens, uh, male politicians tend to spend a little bit more attention to that issue. But uh, I, I agree with you with that. It's important to, to consider the context. Yeah. And we are, all of us are very well aware of that. The problem is if you want to do large-scale comparisons mm-hmm. like you have done well, then you, you need to make things more simple. And, yeah. and to find the, the common denominator, if you will, right? Because yeah. yeah. mm-hmm. you're discussing about the differences it reminds me that one of the major things that keeps 
girls home from school a lot of times, at least in much of the global South, is mm-hmm. the fact that they don't have toilets at the no. at the schools, right? I mean, so mm-hmm. those have huge impacts on mm-hmm. people's lives, right? But not might not be thought of as as a woman's issue per se, but it's incredibly <laughs> yeah. important for women's education. Yeah. And of course, it's a huge difference if you're talking about welfare states like we have in the Nordic countries or if you're talking about another kind of country. So you're thinking about context and its implications for what women want or how we think about women's interests. But how can we also think about context in terms of that link between having women in positions arguably of power and actually having outputs and the outcomes that we think make women's lives better? So the difference between descriptive and, and substantive representation, right? But the other contextual factors that can come into play. This is a, a really important question. Like what makes it easier or harder uh, for descriptive representation to lead to substantive representation? And in my dissertation, I've, I've looked at many conditions, but I think maybe one that I would like to talk about is corruption, where I've gotten really interesting results. And when we think about women's representation, usually the assumption is that things will start improving and women's representation will lead to better substantive outcomes for women as well. And in my dissertation, what I'm able to show is that this is true if corruption is low. So we, if women have the room for maneuver, so to speak. But when corruption levels are high, what you actually see when looking at the aggregate data, so now I'm, I'm talking about I've analyzed the data from 1900 until today and a global sample of countries. And what I found is like a really surprising and maybe counterintuitive finding is that actually when corruption levels are really high, what you see is that when you start increasing women's representation, then some development outcomes worsen, which is maybe something that we wouldn't think of. Like, why would things get worse for development? It wouldn't be equally bad for men and women. But the, some of the explanations that I've been thinking about is that in these very highly corrupt societies, what could be happening is that maybe they, what elites are doing is putting in, in power women who are actually very close to the elite. So famously, we can think about like well, somebody's wife or somebody's mistress or niece or whatever, and just then they would be very close to the elite and just do whatever they are being told and and nothing else. Or it could be that uh, women, when in these very clientelistic societies, that they are really dependent on the relationship with the patron that is sort of taking care of them. So uh, there's been previous research showing that in highly clientelistic societies, women are in relatively weaker position than men because they don't have the same networks of voters and resources and finances to contribute. So that's why they, in these clientelistic societies, they have relatively weaker standing and they just do whatever uh, being told. And what what ends up happening is that the elites put uh, women in power just to legitimize uh, something that would be actually bad for, for women. No, that's very important. But another contextual factor that you're actually mentioning in your dissertation, Val, is the mobilization of women in civil society. And uh, I think this is very important. And uh, looking at the Nordic countries, uh, some scholars call a strategy used here a double strategy. Women have been working inside and outside Mm -hmm. the party simultaneously and working together. And in Sweden, this was very concrete in 1990s when we first had uh, more than 40% women in the national parliament. 
because in the previous period, in the late 1980s and early, early 1990s, then the number of women in parliament decreased for the first mm-hmm. time in Sweden. And then was a network formed that called themselves the Support Stockings, and mm-hmm. they threatened to form Women's Party. And then media, and this is also something that is important that you mentioned also in the dissertation, then media picked this up and then made opinion polls showing that uh, the leader of the, this network, she was kind of popular and a mm-hmm. lot of people could thinking about voting for her in the next election. And then all the other established parties, they felt kind of threatened. Mm-hmm. So they promised to have 40% women on their lists mm-hmm. in the upcoming election. And then the Women's Party was never formed. The, the network dissolved itself. But we have seen similar kind of dynamics also when it comes to more substantial issues. Like in Sweden, the purpose of sex is prohibited. And that was also a kind of issue where women outside and inside the parties joined and worked together. But you showed that it is more mm. systematically also in your dissertation that having a strong women's mobilization in civil society is also helpful to reach specific outcomes. In a sense, both of these are talking about the broader constraints within society as a general and within the political system, right? I mean, even thinking about the ability of civil society to be a functioning partner, in a sense, actually requires some degree of ability to have civil society be effective and mobilized. Step back a little bit to, to the regime type questions that were raised mm-hmm. earlier. Do we know that there are differences in terms of not just about the level of corruption, but also in terms of the types of regimes? Can you talk a little bit about those? Yeah. So uh, this is one of the questions that I was really interested in. And I came in with the expectation that democracies should really outperform autocracies here, thinking about the fact that just in a democracy, women will have a bigger room to uh, what what they were elected to do. But actually, what the analysis of the data shows is that uh, women representatives can be very efficient also uh, in autocracies. And I connect that uh, exactly to the finding that uh, women's civil society organizations can be also successful in authoritarian regimes. Of course, this is um, it can be also a very difficult issue, right? If it's a very closed authoritarian regime, obviously there's not going to be opportunity for civil society organizations to work at all. But in some settings where they are uh, allowed to do at least some things, uh, then this collaboration between women parliamentarians and civil society organizations can be uh, efficient. And here, one other explanation could be also that some of the issues that I have looked at, which is healthcare, as I mentioned earlier, so healthcare budgets, infant mortality, and child mortality, maternal mortality. So these are issues that are good for everybody, right? So it could be that authoritarian leaders are not feeling threatened from decreasing infant mortality, but that could be an outcome that is good for everybody. So that could be one explanation why even in authoritarian regimes, we see women being able to, to make a change. No, I think uh, what you're saying is very important. And for me, the takeaway is that we cannot always take for granted that democracies outperform uh, more authoritarian states. But at the same time, as you also were indicating, we need to have a broader set of issues before we can draw more conclusions on this topic. Because I can imagine that 
issues such as family law and uh, I mean uh, more issues related to religious mm -hmm. things can be more controversial in certain types of authoritarian states. So, but what you are saying is that we cannot take for granted that democracy is always is working better. Yeah. But in order to say, well, does it work as well in authoritarian states? We need more issues before we can draw any more stable conclusion, I would say. That makes sense. Do we know anything about how, about the levels of government? So we're talking a lot about parliamentarians, right? But do we know whether we're moving upward in terms of the role that executives play and how much it might matter in terms of cabinets and executives? Or, of course, for GLD audiences, moving downward is always very interesting. And to think about whether or not the effects that we see about having greater representation in parliament translates downwards to municipalities. And, and you mentioned then are some studies that suggest that it does, at least in the Nordic countries, right? So do we know anything about how that um, extends more generally? If I talk more about the local level, I think it's very important to, to bear in mind that parliaments are legislative bodies, so they make law. In most countries, local councils do not make law, but they have great power over budget. And therefore, you can see the impact on other kinds of issues than you see on the national level. And um, the local level depends also what, what the local level has to decide on, because this varies so much between different countries. Also in Europe, what the actually mandate is for, for, for local councils. In most Nordic countries, local council decides on budgets when it comes to childcare, but also elderly care those kind of areas that is really important for women in their everyday life. And this is also where we can see great impact. Mm -hmm. And I would say it's very hard to be general because it matters what kind of mandate different levels of government has and also the most specific areas that they actually decide upon. I mean, in some countries like Spain, it's mostly about infrastructure at the local level and other issues are more on the regional level. And then you have to talk on the regional level. You know more about the cabinet. Yeah. And heads of states. <laughs> the heads of states. Yeah. That, that's one question that, uh, that I was really interested in to see uh, what kind of a difference do women make when they reach this highest uh, ceiling. So I specifically looked at uh, women who are, have become prime ministers or presidents and what change did they uh, manage to make? And it makes sense, right? That like to look at this highest level because these are the people that actually call the shots, right? These are the people with the power. So it was uh, interesting for me to investigate that question. And one challenge that I just want to mention immediately is that there was been so few women uh, prime minister in parliament. I looked at a, a sample from 2000 to 2016, all countries in the world, and I found 36 women. This is out of close to 200 countries. This is, it was such a low number. That was difficult for methodological mm -hmm. reasons, but it's also important issue to underline. And so uh, anyway, so what, what I find is that uh, indeed uh, when women uh, enter this uh, highest office, they, they are able uh, to make a difference for the issues that we think women would care about more, uh, going back to, to healthcare. So they influence uh, the budget and gather more resources uh, for healthcare. And it's important to underline that uh, this is true for uh, all type of countries, for democracies, for autocracies, richer, poorer 
countries coming out of conflict and also for uh, different ideologies, we, we could very well think that this result is driven by the fact that as Elena mentioned, a lot of left parties uh, elect women to political offices more often, and they also spend more money for healthcare. But actually, we see that even in more center and right wing parties, women leaders gather more resources for, mm. for healthcare, including, for example, Norway is one case that I look at uh, more mm. specifically that even though this was a right wing government, they increased the funding available for, for healthcare. And also, if we talk about those kind of positions, I think that one important dimension is also the symbolic dimension. I mean, it's not that many people that are aware of the number of women in the local council and perhaps not even in the parliament. But being the prime minister or head of state or even being in the cabinet is so visible to people because it's in the media, in the news, every time. And there is a cute story from, from Norway in, in the 1980s when Gro Hallenblundland, she was the prime minister for quite a long period of time. And she was also recognized for having the first female cabinet. I think there were like 30% women in the cabinet. And that was very, very unusual at that time. And one of my Norwegian colleagues, she made a lot of interviews with the kids at that time. And one boy was saying, Mama, can also a boy be prime minister? So... <laughs> <laughs> so, so so I think it, it's, I mean, also for those kind of positions, it's very important to take those dimensions into account. It's not, it's not only about having a concrete impact, but also mm. for young boys and girls, women, men to see, is it possible for someone like me to reach those kind of levels? Is politics for me or is it only for women in this case, when it comes to the story for Norway or in most of the cases for young girls, it's politics also for me. Can someone mm-hmm. like me make a career in politics? Yes. If you see a lot of women on high positions, then I think it's easier to, to imagine a political yeah. career and engage young women to also want to get into politics. It's a fantastic point. Do we know anything? Are there studies that look at that? Not exactly that, but I have actually studied together with a colleague, uh, Amanda Haraldsson, when we look at the impact of uh, representation of women in media mm-hmm. and uh, the number of women uh, candidates, not the ones that get elected. And we can see there's a clear correlation when women are appearing more in the media, especially at experts, than the number of women stating that they want to make a political career is actually higher. So we think that, uh, I mean, this is the way that most citizens uh, interact with politics is through the media. So if women are in the media... Well, it makes a difference. No, I mean, it's great because in a sense, you're both pointing to thinking very carefully about these linkages, right? What would be the the lines of connection, whether it's about kind of symbolic or a, a sense of role model, or if it's about actual policy making or implementation or the budget making, right? And then also thinking about that question about the context, right? I mean, what's the latitude of local governments to begin with, right? So how should we expect that representation to make a difference or not make a difference? And thinking about regime types, thinking about, you know, corruption levels and all of those contextual factors, I think is is wonderful. What do you think are the most important questions that are left to be answered, both for the two of you, but also to inspire your colleagues? What are the open questions? What are the challenges that need to be picked up? I think that both of us recognize that even though parliament changes or local council changes, so what is the connection to everyday life with citizens? And most policy areas have to go through the bureaucracy, the administration, 
And there is actually very little research trying to follow the chain all the way down to citizens or, or taking the other way around following from the citizens up to policy making. And why is this the case? Because, I mean, then you have to take issue by issue and do in-depth studies. So it's really hard to um, collect the kind of data that you need in order to draw more valid conclusions. But uh, you recognize this in your dissertation, and I think that a lot of scholars see this missing link. There is research on bureaucracies, on administration, and also from a gender perspective, but very few connect those different steps and what's actually happening from policymaking down to the citizen level. So that's one gap. Yeah, I agree. It will be it will be great. I, when when I started with my dissertation, I really wanted to study maternal healthcare. And uh, one of the first things I stumbled was that I couldn't find really good data, even on maternal mortality, that is, has good uh, cross-national coverage. So I agree with Lena that there's a lot of issues that concern the everyday life of people that uh, that would be great to to gather more resources, to gather more data and understand better how, how they've uh, developed over time. So one, one thing that I would be interested in studying is exactly maternal health care, maternal mortality, also issues such as female genital mutilation. This is another important topic that we know very little about, and uh, but it's important to understand. And then also some of the things that we started to talk about uh, today, so, so sort of the conditions. Uh, we, we talked about corruption, we talked about uh, democracy. But uh, th- there are other issues that that could be taken up and uh, understood in uh, in deeper to a deeper extent. So I'm, for example, would be interested in studying more how the to disentangle more how does the general level of equality in the country affects what's what's happening uh, politics and do are the changes that we are capturing uh, me in my dissertation, for example, is this because just things are improving for women in general or. Or what is actually driving this relationship? And another thing is that the gender, of course, is a very crude category. Mm-hmm. We all yeah. know that not all women are supportive of women's rights yeah. and some men are supportive of women's rights. So this is also another area that I would like to see more research on, mm-hmm. trying to make more distinctions. And uh, I mean, women would not have voting rights uh, at all if not there had been for a lot of supportive men, of yeah. course. Yeah. So. We also see this in a lot of countries that some men tend to be more supportive than others. And this is really interesting. So so what is the characteristics of those men supporting women's rights? And when can you see that there is a spillover effect if women are the first politicizing certain areas? And then when do men tend to enter those areas and what kind of spillover effects and connections Especially in the Nordic countries, we have seen a lot of support, of course, from male politicians, because otherwise, if women are not 50% of members of a parliament, then you have to have support from your male colleagues. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, nothing comes through. That's the reality. I just wanted to to tie back to what you were saying, that like a lot of these issues that we are talking about are not just women's issues, right? Like I'm thinking about also healthcare, right? So you mentioned cancer, and this is not just an issue that women care about, and or infant and child mortality, everybody should care about those issues. So this is, it's important to get the full perspective. No, and it also reminds me that when you say women's rights, I think the three of us around the table probably have the same set of rights and opportunities in mind, right? But then there are also women who would say that they are very much in favor of women's rights, but may want almost the exact opposite 
things to be done and even sets of kinds of what we think of as restrictions. So that's another, I think, really important thing to interrogate, especially today where it feels like those perspectives on what is a woman's right and what do we want is becoming arguably more and more polarized. So just curious, I mean, we've talked a lot about politicians, but we haven't really talked that much about what are the policy implications or what would you tell policymakers or development specialists or people interested in policy? What are the implications of your work that you would want them to know? I think that like one of the big takeaways uh, from my recent work is uh, that it's it's great to promote uh, women's representation, but it also matters who are the women that uh, end up being in politics. And one idea here is uh, if you want to, 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 pr- to promote women's substantive representation, then it's a good idea also to promote women's professional organizations, women's civil society organizations who would be advocating for uh, women's issues as well. And then uh, from there, that, that could spark change. Yes, and I also think that one important takeaway is that we cannot uh, only look at the proportion of women. We also need to, to understand, do they have a room to maneuver and a room for their own to, to try to figure out what are their specific interests and if there are any, how can they promote it the best way? And I think it's also important to think of women's representation in all kinds of parties. So this is not an issue just for left parties, but in all parties to think what are the obstacles for women in my specific party and how can we help women overcome the kinds of obstacles they meet. And um, I remember when I, I finished my dissertations, it's almost 25 years ago now, so it's a long time ago. But then I was invited to make a presentation in Turkey, which has a very low number of women in the parliament, and they still do. And then it was so interesting because uh, the female politicians in Turkey, they wanted me to say how exactly women made it in Sweden. How exactly did you reach those high numbers? And I realized it's very hard to, to give those kind of policy recommendations because they were telling me how to do it in a country where film politicians are not able to go out to cafes or move around and connect to voters and where they don't have an income of their own, where to start. It needs to be some kind of double strategy to, to improve the situation for women in politics, but at the same time, do not lose touch with the women on the ground and see what kind of room to maneuver do they have, mm-hmm. because otherwise you will only get a certain kind of female politicians, the elite women. Mm-hmm. And all politicians are elite in one way or the other, but they can be <laughs> less so if you also take care about what's happening on the ground. And perhaps also one important takeaway is to say the sad thing that democracy takes time and changes take time. So you cannot expect very high number of changes taking place within one mandate period. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like we're talking about 10, perhaps 20 years perspectives. Mm-hmm. So this is also a very important lesson. Some changes can happen very quickly. The most important changes normally take a lot of time, actually. And also talking about changes, I've been asked several times when about my dissertation, but what if I had not found any results that women don't make a change? Like, what does that mean? And I always say that, at least in my opinion, women's representation has a value of its own. It's it's very important normative value simply for the reason that women have been excluded for such a long time. It's not that they just randomly happen that 
women were not present uh, in politics, but they were systematically excluded from attending university, from working, from being from voting, from uh, being elected. So this is something that also needs to be addressed at, uh, on the system level, just for its own value and for increasing the democratic legitimacy of regimes, but also for eventually, as you said, to represent better women's interests. No, that's very important. But at the same time, I, I tend to think if you have society with clear gender structure in everyday life, then it would, to me, be very strange if you could not see an effect of ha- having a high yeah. number of women in politics. Then I would be yeah. suspicious. That <laughs> no, but then it's a certain kind of women that get into politics, yeah. I-, I would say. If you have the situation yeah. where there are clear right. gender structures in-, in society at large. Right. Fantastic. Thank you both so much. Is there anything else that you want us to know? I think that's that's an important point to take into consideration and to end on. But I also want to give you a chance if there are other things that we haven't touched on that you wanted to make sure we know. No, I think we covered a lot. Yeah, yeah, it was a really interesting conversation. So thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode. And again, want to thank the Swedish Research Council for its ongoing support. We also invite you to like, share, and subscribe to Governance Uncovered wherever you get your podcasts. And please feel free to come to our website and drop us a note with suggestions or topics you'd like to see covered. We'd love to hear from you.